0: City streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation.
1: Welcome to A Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. Today, I have the dawning task of filling in for Dr. Ron Martinelli. Fortunately, I have a guest that I'm confident is going to help me do that. Today's show is on stalking the stalker, and I'd like to introduce Mike Proctor, a retired homicide detective and an internationally recognized expert in the field of stalking. Mike, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, Joni. I appreciate it.
1: We're really excited to have you on. And I know this is a very important topic. The stats are pretty frightening when we consider that seven and a half million people each year are stalked, most often by someone they know. So let's start by defining stalking. What exactly is it?
2: Well, any person who willfully and maliciously and repeatedly follows or willfully and maliciously harasses another person and who makes a credible threat with the intent to place that person in reasonable fear. For his or her safety, or the safety of his or her immediate family, is guilty of the crime of stalking. So it's a pretty simple definition. What most people don't get about stalking is there doesn't have to be a direct threat. In other words, I'm going to kill you, or I'm going to smash your head, or I'm going to do this to you, or I'm going to do that to you. It's a credible threat. And a credible threat is a group of things that transpire over a period of time. in each state in the United States has a set time period. Some are three, some are four, some put days, others don't. Now, which causes immediate fear or severe distress for the victim and or her close relatives.
1: So what is this idea of a reasonable fear? Who decides that? And you know, what is it?
2: Well, I always like to use the common law doctrine in regards to that. I go back to it all the time. It's what a reasonable person would think would be a fearful thing that transpires between the stalker and their specific target. We call them targets. They call them victims. It doesn't really make any difference to system law enforcement. We call them targets.
1: And Mike, give me an example of like one of the most common myths about stalking because it would seem to me like that even though it's a pretty straightforward definition, there's kind of some slippery words in there. Like you said, you know, credible threat, reasonable fear. And then when you read about some of the examples about stalking, such as, you know, repeated text over and over again, or somebody calling you over and over again, I can see how people might kind of go, well, what's the big deal? Just ignore it.
2: Well, it's easy to say unless you're the person that's being stalked. Oftentimes the first question when I lecture is often by people is, well, how do I know I'm being stalked? I will guarantee you that you know you're being stalked. It is a very uncomfortable and sometimes severely disabling situation that you get involved in. We've had females that have all kinds of problems generated by their stalker, uh, mental disorders. I'm not, and that includes mental and medical disorders that they suffer from because of this continual harassment. And keep in mind, it doesn't have to be behavior that on the outset looks threatening to the average person, but when it's continually expressed by this individual, they show up your place of work, they contact your relatives to try and find out information in regards to you, and then guess what? Your relatives are contacting you trying to figure out what's going on. You know, know, Mike,
1: I um, absolutely agree with you about the psychological impact. I've seen some victims of stalkers in the past, and I know that research shows that eight out of every 10 victims exhibit some symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. So I think that probably is something that a lot of people have a hard time getting their arms around, because when you take these instances, in, like one at a time, they might not be that severe, but when you put them all together, as you're talking about, it can become very, very frightening for people.
2: That's a very good point, Joni. When you put them together, remember, it's a course of conduct. It's a behavioral scenario that you have to pay attention to.
1: Hey, so, Mike, who exactly stalks? Is there a profile? Is there a pattern? How do we know?
2: I get asked this all the time. The thing is that there's all different types of stalkers. Most people see stalking as something that happens to somebody in the media if they don't know when someone in their family that's been stalked, say in a domestic violence situation. But only 10% approximately of all stalking is media related. About So Mike,
1: when you say media, are you doing like a celebrity?
2: Yes. Celebrity okay. type stalking. It doesn't have to, celebrity not just movie actors and actresses, but celebrity being somebody that's in the political world or someone that's your uh, weatherman that type of thing. So, there's all different types of celebrities that can be stalked.
1: And is it, why would somebody stalk a celebrity?
2: Well, most celebrity stalkers in general are fairly delusional. Now, most stalkers are not delusional. Remember, we've got a whole gamut of stalkers out there. But a celebrity stalker in general believes they have a relationship. They're erotomanic in, in nature. So, we call what them What does that erotomatic- mean?
1: Or what do you mean when you say erotomanic?
2: Well, we classify them as an erotomatic type stalker. So comes from your world, erotomania. So they have a situation where they believe that they have a relationship with that particular individual. In fact, many of them believe they have children with those people, that they've been on long-term relationships with them. They've gone to overseas in Europe. They show up on their movie sets with them and they're allowed to come on those movie sets. But in fact, they're not, obviously. But they believe they have a relationship with that individual.
1: So one type of stalker is the stalker who develops these delusions. They're not in touch with reality. Here's somebody who may be even beyond a super fan. This is somebody who actually develops some beliefs about having some relationship that is really non-existent. But I know you mentioned earlier that most stalkers don't stalk celebrities. So tell me about what are the other stalkers? Who are they stalking?
2: Well, approximately eighty percent of all stalking involves intimate partner or domestic violence scenarios, and as you know, an intimate partner relationship—you don't have to have a sexual relationship—but oftentimes that's in that's in play, and more than not, if it is in play, it gets to be a worse type scenario. We'll what do say. you mean? Well, they have—they feel there's more control, or there. there's more of a that the individual, because they've had a sexual relationship with them, that that person should be totally in love with them and involved with them, and and there's no reason why that relationship should stop. It's almost like a schism. I classify it as a schism type thing where a stalker is in a relationship that goes awry and tries to push that relationship back together again, and they'll use whatever tool that's in their basket to get it done.
1: So most of these stalking situations, what I'm hearing you say, Mike, is they start when the relationship is over? Yes, In, in terms of the, that's the case. Okay, and so the, what the goal is to somehow convince the person to get back together?
2: Yeah, and many times it is, but keep in mind, when you have a domestic violence stalking relationship, when we bring the victim in and sit her down, and the reason I'm using females, we do have males that are stalked as well, but primarily it's about 75, 25. 75% female, and 25% male, when you bring them in for an evaluation, you can see the controlling tactics that are used on the victim prior to and during the stalking. And it's really bad when they have children because the children are used as pawns or tools in a variety of ways. And we try and stop that as soon as we can.
1: So pawns are tools in terms of using these children as a way to kind of get to the spouse or the ex-partner.
2: Correct. But another thing is, well, we have to give you an example. We'll have them somehow get access to the children and then they demean the children over and over again about their mother. or And they also ask them repeated questions about who they're seeing, who they're going out with, what their targets are doing.
1: And it just crushes the children. And so they're actually involving the children in the stalking. It sounds like well, to a point it 's a tool
2: that 's used by them.
1: They have several
2: tools, and that 's one of them and The other thing that 's really tragic that we see, Joni is that when we sit down, one of the questions that we tell our evaluators to do when they 're talking to a woman that has had has children in the, in this particular scenario is has the stalker ever been sexually assaulted or molested during the course of his or her life. And it's interesting what you see on the other end. You see the women either burst into tears or their eyes get extremely wide because unfortunately too many times we have stalkers that will molest the children for two specific reasons. One, they're fantasizing about a relationship with the particular target they're going after. Or they're molesting the child to get back at the victim and cause her extreme emotional distress and grief.
1: So, you know, Mike, as a psychologist, you know, when you ask that question, I'm interested in how you would use that. And I'll tell you why I'm asking that question is clearly we know that a significant percentage of individuals who sexually abuse others, have been victims themselves, but we also know that most people who've been victims of sexual abuse don't then turn around and abuse somebody else. So how do you use that information when you ask that question in a stalking assessment?
2: Well, it's just one of the questions that we use because we have to generate a threat assessment evaluation. In my line of work, threat assessment is a big deal, and we use it because we have to find out what the lethality issue is with the particular stalker concerning the victim. Perhaps during the course of this conversation, we'll get into exactly how we handle a victim in a stalking scenario to gather the information needed, the requisite information we need to prosecute the case. Because I've told you before on conversations not on topic that we, in general, when we investigate a stalker, we generate a 250 to 500 to 700 page crime report. And that's one of the reasons why stalking in general is not prosecuted as well as it should be.
1: So how did these individuals get to you? The victims? Yes. What happens
2: is, for example, I was a homicide detective in the first stalking case I ever had. I was still working homicide at the time. I'd been a cop for 20 years and uh, was in the homicide detail. And we got a contact from an insurance company. And the insurance company said that they had been contacted by an individual who, a male individual who had said that he was, had uh, signed a contract or a verbal contract with a female to kill her husband so that she could gain the million dollar insurance policy. Well, it came to the homicide team, but in fact, what it was, was a, was a stalking. And we found out she'd been stalked by the particular individual that was trying to set her up again to harass her for at least six years prior to her getting to us. victims. So so wait a
1: second. This is a person who initially is trying to hire somebody to kill her husband, and it turns out that he's been stalking her?
2: The stalker was feigning that he was a hitman. He was trying to mess with the target, his target, to cause her extreme emotional grief. He had already done various sundry things to her over, many years prior to her getting to us. That's one of the reasons why we ask the victims of stalking to bring in all the crime reports that they've had from other agencies, to bring in everything the stalker has ever given them, calls, telephone calls, texts, whatever. We research all that when they come in. We have a set way of doing it. Now, keep in mind that all police departments may not work stalkers like we do. In fact, they don't, only 5 to 16% of all stalking in the United States is ever prosecuted as a stalking case.
1: That's that's pretty discouraging.
2: Well, it is. And that's why we continue to train. The biggest problem is training. Most law enforcement officers and detectives aren't well trained in stalking. What they'll get is that, remember, it's a course of conduct crime. So they'll get A variety of crimes that have transpired like rude, annoying, threatening phone calls or trespass or multiple text entries or or stalking over the Internet and that type of thing. And what they'll do, because they have so many cases, they'll go, "Okay, we can take care of this trespass right now. We can get this guy hooked up and arrested and, and prosecuted on this misdemeanor trespass. They don't have the time or they don't think they do, but they really do or the knowledge to connect all the dots and bring everything together to present it to the DA.
1: So they are, it sounds like, taking each incident and kind of handling it one at a time. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yes, they do that unless they have a protocol in place. The protocol is something we teach, but if they have a protocol in place to handle all those incidents and put them together, because unfortunately, sometimes when that crime comes across their desk, Oh, I have a trespass. They don't look any further down the road to see if there's more cases involving this particular subject. And the reason that patrol deputies and patrol officers need to be well-trained in stalking too is so they can ask those questions, articulate that in their initial crime report so the investigator that gets the case and hopefully is well-trained in stalking, that's another thing, can put the pieces together. And then it works.
1: So what kind of questions would the person at the patrol officer ask that might be a red flag that this is not just a trespassing problem? This could be something a lot bigger.
2: Well, number one, he's gonna have an open mind. He or she's gotta have an open mind when she contacts the victim and, and the victim's gonna come, well, this guy's just been following me and doing this kind of stuff. He's and the call, the immediate immediate call was he trespassed. Well, they have to go further. Well, has he done this more times than that? What else has he done? And that opens the floodgates. Then they're able to articulate all this information. Now, we don't expect a patrol officer to have the time to do all the investigation or anything else that he or she needs, because they're not going to have the capabilities of doing that. And again, times of the essence. When I was working, we were rolling from one felony call to the next when we we're in the street. So if they gather the information, articulate some way in the report that they believe a stocking's transpiring. Then the investigator can get involved and handle So the, the patrol cases. officer
1: would just kind of start the ball rolling by asking Absolutely. some pertinent questions that then would alert the investigator to kind of follow up and ask more questions.
2: Absolutely. And that's where you're seeing a lot of the stuff fall through the cracks.
1: So, Mike, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, what I'd love for you to do is to take us through a specific case, kind of from start to finish. We'll be back in a moment on A Thread of Evidence.
3: Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com For a wide spectrum of programming for world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio.
0: This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police. On sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the Warren Police at Amazon.com.
1: Welcome back to A Threat of Evidence. My guest is Mike Proctor, and we're talking about stalking the stalker. Uh, Mike, before our break, we talked about you taking us through an actual case that you worked. Tell us about one that really stands out for you.
2: Well, stalking in general is fun for me to work because the stalkers are so unusual. Many of them have severe psychological issues, not, and a lot of them have personality disorders. Some of them don't have anything going on. But the first case, one of the first cases that I worked in regards to stalking was a case but when I was discussing about the insurance agent that called about this individual that had come in and was threatening the victim's husband, that turned out to be a very unique case for a variety of reasons. Number one, the first one was we'd never worked a stalking case in our entire life. The law had just come into fruition in California and there there weren't any other stalking laws. So keep that in mind. We didn't know what the heck we were doing at all in regards to working a stalking case, and the prosecutors weren't prosecuting this case because no one had ever submitted one. So we started from scratch, which was kind of good in, in one way. So what happened is this individual had actually started his stalking in the state of Alabama. He had kidnapped a the female there, transferred her to a fish house along a lake, and raped her multiple times. And stalked her over a period of years. There, he had then moved out. He was six foot four, weighed two hundred and fifty pounds. He had a uh, photographic memory, and most stalkers will ledger and keep notes on their victims and things like that. But he didn't have to because he memorized everything, which was unique in himself. He was intelligent, but he did not keep any type of a job. He was often on the streets, but he kept himself extremely clean to a point he was OCD. And these are things we're finding as we go along. And you must do that as an investigator. You got to research the stalker or won't we say stalk the stalker. So we took him back to where he had started out in his life and he had been molested as a child in his neighborhood several times by a neighbor. We found that out. He became extremely violent after that period of time. When he contacted this victim she worked in a restaurant he was into restaurant females that worked in restaurants we found that to be a case because he'd stalked multiple victims over a prolonged period of time when he found this victim she broke up with him after six months he went to her restaurant grabbed a hold of her took her out in the parking lot put her face in the side of a window of her car and beat one side of her face so badly that she looked like hamburger on one side and her face was on the other. You couldn't tell her face that was beat up. It was so badly beaten. So he began stalking her over a period of years. When we got the case, we arrested him. It took us three months to get that case prosecuted. And we had to go to a special prosecution's unit because no one wanted to touch it because they'd never done it.
1: So Mike, how common is it that a person stalks more than one person?
2: Okay, good question. And I get asked it all the time. Stalkers don't stalk multiple victims at one time. Stalkers are serial in nature. Not all of them. You can't say there's whatever you have matches each stalker. Each stalker is different and that's important too. So stalkers will oftentimes stalk multiple victims. They have an extremely high rate of recidivism, all right? So when we're working this guy backwards, we find out, we find other victims of stalking, and some of them are male, some of them are female. He's bisexual. So after a period of three years, we arrested him, put him in jail. He, was, he only went down for misdemeanor stalking cases because, like I said, it was a brand new thing. The judge was so worried about our victim when he issued the restraining order against our stalker he gave her a 10 mile distance that the stalker had to stay away from her it's only you
1: I don't think I've ever I don't think I've ever heard no, of that it's
2: never been done before 10 miles okay we sent the stalker to Alabama to finish off his probation because you could do that through the interstate compact act we had no idea that the stalker had fled jurisdiction in Alabama. So he comes back and I happened to run across him with my two boys when I was in a park. He walks right in front of us in a park in Garden Grove. And then I re-arrest him again. I arrested him three times. The last time I arrested him, he was profiled in America's most wanted. And when I arrested him, and this is over a period of 19 years, 19 years that he stalked this victim off and on because he would stalk other females and other males in between that time, but he always would come back to this victim because she was what we classify as a Genesis victim, all right? Something about that particular victim, he felt he was married to her, by the way, something about that victim is what they keep coming back to. So he was profiled in America's Most Wanted because he fled jurisdiction again, and we found him in a, what was it? It was a theater, and he'd been watching the movie Basic Instinct for the last 14 days. He was able to con the people there to allow him to come into the theater for no cost and watch that same motion picture over and over again
1: and you know, i'm starting to see how complicated some of these cases are and i'm wondering is you know, so much of the time when you're i'm reading stories in the media or looking at news you'll see something like you know victim is murdered was stalked for 6 years before that police let her down yes and i'm wondering kind of if what you're telling me some of the details you're telling me about this case are things that law enforcement runs up against all the time where what what can you actually do when somebody keeps doing it over and over again
2: Well, you have to keep going after them, and that's why we keep extensive records on our stalker. Just in regards to what you just said, about 54% of all victims that are killed prior or stalked prior have told the police about their stalking case prior to their death, and that's an unfortunate statistic. And you can get a lot of these statistics, by the way, by going to the Stalking Resource Center. On the internet, they have a ton of information for those that are interested in gathering that.
1: I mean, are there any warning signs, Mike? I mean, I have two teenage daughters, and I I think about some of these things, and it's just terrifying. Is there are there any clues early on? I know that you mentioned domestic violence, but I would imagine that some people only start stalking after the relationship is over,
2: or some people stalk to get the relationship. Remember, there's a lot of that that transpires as well. So I hope I wasn't, I didn't. Confuse you, but many stalkers will stalk to get a relationship. I just recently had a stalker. Unfortunately, it was a celebrity stalker because I don't work a great deal of celebrity stalkers because I'm involved with law enforcement most of the time. And you have teams like the Threat Management Unit about LAPD that work a lot of the celebrities, stalking cases, and that type of thing. I came from a team as well. We developed the Family Protection Unit. And I will guarantee you this that we had stalkers that would kill. They're victims, but once we developed the st- the family protection union and started working stalkers, we never ever had a homicide transpire from a stalking case when we were made aware the stalking was there prior. We stopped it from happening. And that's important. And what was your question again, Joni? I'm afraid I got a little sidetracked there.
1: No, I was just talking we were just talking about how frustrating it must be for law enforcement because you would what we do read these articles in the media about, you know let down by police because this person was stalked for six years and had warned police and t- called police a hundred times. And, and I was just wondering kind of how often that happens and what do you do to prevent that? Given that sometimes we can't, you know, confine people who haven't done something in the future.
2: Correct. Here's the situation. And two things you talked about your daughters, uh, campus stalking in the college level is huge we're getting more and more of it. In fact, I worked on a stocking consortium thing for USC. It was a government grant to assist on how to better work stalkers on campus, but we're finding that juvenile stalking and secondary school stalking is also on the increase, and the juvenile stalking statistics are very interesting because we're talking more females do the stalking in the in the younger sets than actual males, and a lot of times it's not to gain a relationship, it's to stalk, to demean the victim and or bully. And a lot of times we're finding bullying is becoming part and parcel of stalking, primarily in the high school and junior high school levels. When I first started teaching about stalking, I would get high school teachers coming up to me and going, wow, I didn't understand this, but we've got kids that are doing that right now. That's true. But you have to be aware as a cop about what's going on. And I will tell you that oftentimes it takes a village to work a stalker.
1: I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and I'm talking with my guest, Mike Proctor, about stalking the stalker. Mike One of the things that I wanted to talk with you about today is the issue of mental health professionals and stalkers. I had a mentor when I lived in Dallas who had to change offices several times because of a client that she had that she started feeling uncomfortable with and talked with this person and just could never really get this person to understand that what he was doing was inappropriate. And I'm wondering how often you come across psychologists who are being stalked by a a current or a former patient or client.
2: Well, it's just not psychologists that I'm running across, but it's a growing concern right now with all mental health and all healthcare providers in general. Many of them are becoming the victims of stalking. But it's an interesting topic that you brought up because I get an awful lot of these people, a lot of uh, psychologists, especially single office psychologists, contacting me with issues concerning stalking that they are, in fact, being stalked, and so much so that. In my book, I I wrote a special section on how to set up their offices so they're better protected against individuals like this. One of the things that I find with these particular professionals is that when they have an individual that comes into their purview, they don't know everything about that individual at all. And so when they sit down with them, they show empathy towards these individuals. And unfortunately, showing empathy to an individual that is programmed to be a stalker is not a very good idea. And it creates- But Mike,
1: that's what we do. I mean, we're psychologists, right? We're mental health professionals. We have to be empathetic for our clients.
2: Joni, exactly, exactly. That's what you do. And that makes you a target. You've got this big target (laughs) on your back, the nurse, the RN that's in the hospital with the victim, et cetera, et cetera, somebody that shows them empathy. I used to, to give an example, I used to walk into facilities for board and care and people that have mental conditions and that type of thing. I mean, you walk in as a cop, you better watch it because you're wearing a uniform and a badge and there's just something about that and they all want to be your friend. They grab a hold of you. They hold on to you. They want to be with you. They want to go home with you, all those things. So when these individuals come into your purview, this is what happens. And it's extremely difficult to detach yourself from those. Oftentimes what we get is the mental health professional will be sued by the individual because they won't keep them on as a client or When they try and transfer them to another uh, healthcare professional, they run into all kinds of issues. So it is a problem that we're now starting to see and working more and more with. I'm a member of ATAP, Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. We have a large grouping throughout the United States and abroad, and it is an organization that does great work, but it also... Has a great deal of mental health professionals and medical professionals that indicate to us that they're having these types of issues. So it's something that you have to be aware of in your field.
1: That's definitely a point that's well taken. I mean, I th- and I think it would be very confusing for most of us mental health professionals because we're there to help somebody work through issues. And so it kind of goes against a lot of our training to think about how actually having to terminate somebody because of those issues. And yeah, what I'm hearing you say is certainly in, in these cases, we have to for our own safety.
2: Well, let me give you just a brief example. I have a lady that just happened to be a retired cop that got her PhD in psychology and began having her own business. And she had a nurse come to her and After a period of time, the nurse attached. And what she would do is she would go out and come back in for an interview, and she'd be dressed the same exact way as her psychologist was that day. So she would watch the psychologist and see what she wore, and she would go out before she came in and wear this very similar or exact clothing. And where the psychologist left her and had to cancel their relationship their professional relationship, there was no other side relationship was when she said, I just bought a new gun. Would you like to see it? So yeah, that's an issue.
1: Yeah. That would be an issue. That's, that would be very frightening.
2: Yes. And it was for her, even though she had been a previous cop and carried a gun. So most psychologists don't. So those are things that you have to watch. Doctors have the same problem. They administer, they take care of you, to save you. Now, I'm cut up all the time. That's just part of my life. I've been had a lot of damage in law enforcement. And so I appreciate the doctor being a good doctor, but I'm not going to follow the doctor around because he fixed my back or took care of my knees. But that's something that these people do. And you never know when you're going to get one.
1: Well, that's the tricky thing, I think. I mean, we have to set boundaries no matter what profession that we're in, but I think it does become a judgment call and a difficult one to know when to draw those boundaries. But we have to take a quick break. When we come back, Mike, you've talked a lot about some of the work that you do in terms of stalking threat assessment. What I'd like to do is for you to take us through a case from beginning to end and help us understand how you do these investigations.
0: I'm Dr. Ron Martinelli.
1: And I'm Linda Martinelli.
0: As former law enforcement officers, we know that your life and the lives of those you love and work with can change in an instant when you encounter an active shooter.
4: Unfortunately, in today's world of uncertainty, encountering an armed active shooter can have deadly consequences. That's why the key to survival is training and preparedness.
0: And that's why we want to invite our listeners to seriously consider taking our response to active shooter training course.
4: Violence can happen to you anytime and anywhere and when you least expect it. Having a response and survival plan and engaging it can be the difference between life and death for you or a family member.
0: Our Response to Active Shooter courses are customized for the corporate, school, church, restaurant and small business environment at a reasonable budget that fits your needs.
4: So don't put this life-saving training off because you don't think it will ever happen to you. We call those people victims.
0: Our Response to Active Shooter instructors are all nationally renowned tactical law enforcement experts who will guide you through the life-saving protocols you'll need to survive an active shooter event.
4: So be a victor, not a victim. Go to responsetoactiveshooter.com to learn more today.
0: Remember, that's all one word, responsetoactiveshooter.com and be safe out there. The Out Loud Perspective
3: awaits you in life, love, politics, a healthy lifestyle, your faith, personal development, and living an Out Loud life on AmericaOutloud.com, your News and Entertainment Network, where you can listen 24-7 on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio.
5: Tired of watching the same old, same old sporting events? Well, kick it up a notch and get ready, America, for something you've never seen before. It's the new generation of Western superstars. Shorty Gorham's American Freestyle Bullfighting. The newest, most extreme, premier Western sporting event. Shorty Gorham's American Freestyle Bullfighting pits one freestyle bullfighter against a Spanish fighting bull in a matchup best described as the most dangerous dance on dirt. Who will win? The acrobatic, tough-as-nails Western superstar or the meanest? half-ton fighting bulls on earth the future of extreme sports this is not the bullfighting that you remember this is one of the most extreme sports you'll ever see in an arena this is hand to horn combat on a level playing field for more information and schedule of events go to shorty gorham afb.com or find them on facebook that's shorty afb.com or find them on facebook it's bullfighting time
1: Welcome back to A Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and our guest today is Mike Proctor, who's helping us stalk the stalker. Um, Welcome back to the show, Mike. I'm wondering how often people contact you today, or do people contact you on your website? And if they do, what kind of emails do you get, and how do you help people?
2: Yes, I get contacted on a regular basis on my website. Probably about, I get probably three to ten contacts easy a day on my website, www.detectivemikeproctor.com. And these are people oftentimes reaching out because they believe they're in a stalking scenario and they'd like some help with that. And because I don't actually work each stalking case that comes across my website, only if law enforcement invites me in, then I'll get primarily involved with it, I give them help. I'll help anybody that's being stalked. I don't have a problem with that. So I give them things that they can do. But one of the things that I tell them to do is to get a copy of my book, Antidote for Stalker. That's my latest book. It's 500 pages, and it covers the whole gamut of the stalking phenomena. In fact, how to act when you're being stalked, what to do, when to contact law enforcement, how to help them. Those types of things are all generated in that. Oftentimes they'll read the book that'll help them. They'll come back with additional questions and then I can help them with that. I don't charge people for that. I do charge people for training like uh, victim advocates, healthcare professionals, law enforcement and that type of thing. Oftentimes I'll be contacted by attorneys for celebrities or CEOs and that type of thing. And they're oftentimes surprised when they say, all right. How much are you going to charge? And I'm talking to them on the phone. I rarely talk to people on the phone. I usually do it through my website, but occasionally I will talk to them on the phone. The first question I'm asked is, how much are you going to charge? What's it going to cost? And when I tell them, can you tell me a little bit about what's happening? And they do. And I say, I'm not going to charge anything. I'll help you out. I'll give you this information and you can go do it. If I have to come in and help you, then that's different, but I'll just do it this way. And you know what I get? I get a real long pause on the phone because they're so surprised that the first word out of my mouth isn't how much money am I going to get?
1: That's not how yeah, it that's, Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And I'm sure you've helped a lot of people. So give me an example of a, like an email that you've gotten recently. Give us a sense of like what, what people ask you.
2: Oh, what people ask me, they ask me questions like, I'm having this stalking situation. This guy's been following me for X amount of time, or I've been in a really bad relationship. What can I do? They'll send me a lot of information about what's transpired and what they believe to be a stalking. Now, on the other hand, I get a lot of people that contact me that actually should be seeing mental health professionals like you because they're not being stalked. They believe they are. It's either a false victimization scenario or they're delusional. They think that every aircraft that flies over them or something like that is an individual watching them and taking photographs of them and things of that nature. I get a lot of that too.
1: That's really interesting. So Mike, how do you sort through that on an, in an email? Like how do you tell this is somebody who needs mental health treatment versus this is somebody who may be in real trouble?
2: Well, you can tell. I've been doing this for a long time. I've been working stalker since 1991. So the thing is you can see what the indicators are. You can also see when a person tells you that they had a GPS monitor transplanted in their body, and this individual talks through them through the GPS monitor and knows exactly where they are all the time. That's kind of iffy. I mean, you don't have to be someone that's been doing it as long as I to be able to figure that out. So we do get that kind of thing. But we also get parents that will contact me and say, my child is having this issue and that issue. And I'm more than happy to reach out to those people and help them. In fact, I want them to tell me after I've told them to get law enforcement contact or whatever else, what the result was, because I'm result oriented. I wanna know, I wanna know I helped that person. I don't wanna just sit there and try and make something off of these people or anything else. That's not why I started.
1: You know, Mike, what I'm wondering is, I know that you want like to get feedback back, but, and, and so I'm wondering, like, when people get back to you and say, Mike, I bought your book, it was so helpful to me. Tell me a couple of things or tips that they say were particularly helpful to them. Well, there's a,
2: there's a whole section in the book, Joni, in chapter five, it talks and uh, walks them through what to do in case you're being stalked. Then there are several sections in the book, because remember I told you in the onset, stalkers are different. So you have to know the type of stalker, especially law enforcement does, that you're dealing with because each of them have certain proclivities. So this stalker may stalk this way and has this personality disorder, and you're going to see more and more of this transpire. If you're a cop, you want to know that stuff so that you can better work that case and interview that subject. If you're a victim of stalking, you can identify with what I've said and say, oh, man, I've got this kind of stalker.
1: So Mike, break that down for me. So if I'm reading your book, what would be an example of a kind of stalker I might be able to identify and what would that information help me do?
2: Well, three basic kinds of stalkers that that we I put out because it's easier to do that. Try and make things simple. You've got domestic violence, intimate partner stalker, all right? And then you've got a stranger stalker, which you know nothing about the individual. You're being stalked by somebody you have no clue stalking you. They've entered in your residence. They, they're gathering information on you, and they're scaring you to death. You have no knowledge about who this individual is. And as a cop, you got to work those stalkers completely different than intimate partner relationships. And then you have what we call the acquaintance stalker. That's somebody you meet at work. Maybe you have a coffee with them, something like that. Or you're, you know, I've had them where they're in a supermarket and they're walking down down the supermarket, and all of a sudden the guy attaches and he starts stalking the victim. I mean, it can be as simple as that and as tragic as that because it doesn't take much for these people to attach. And that's a problem for everybody. Now, then we have sub on top of that where we talk about triangle stalkers. We talk about predatory stalkers, third-party stalkers, retribution stalkers, neighborhood stalkers, juvenile stalkers, campus stalkers. So, and then we discuss what those are. For example, if you have a triangle stalking, a real good example of that, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Michael Douglas, and this female individual who was stalking them. I would get calls. I was a talking head on television a lot. I would get calls from news agencies saying, hey, can you come on right now and talk about this. And I I could or I couldn't, depending. But the thing is, when Catherine Zeta-Jones was being stalked, they said, she's so gorgeous, I'd stalk her too. And this is a female commentator saying this to me. And I said, really? Because that's not what the problem is. That stalker wants to kill Catherine Zeta-Jones, eliminate her from the position, because she's going after Michael Douglas. So you get the triangle, Douglas at the top, Zeta over on the left, And the stalker, the other stalker over in the corner of the triangle. And she's going for Douglas. She wants to eliminate Zeta Jones.
1: You know, it's interesting, Mike, that you bring that such a good point because I think stalking is a term that we use that in so many different contexts. And I think I understand that. But I also think, as you're saying, that when people use that kind of loosely or, you know, I'd stalk that person too, I think in some respects that kind of minimizes really what true stalking is and how terrifying and potentially dangerous a you know legitimate stalking case can be.
2: That's an excellent point. And that's why when we are asked when a celebrity gets stalked, do I get mad? Absolutely not. Because it draws more attention to the issue of stalking. They're victims. They need to be taken care of like anybody else. They just have better assets than most people do. All right. So The situation is I don't have a problem when they're stalked and it gets in the newspaper because the average person in the middle on the street, it doesn't get in the newspaper. All right, because they're not celebrities, but they're still terrorized and they need help.
1: So, Mike, it sounds like your book is just fantastic and that it gives victims a lot of resources, a lot of information. I also know that you consult with law enforcement on these cases. And so give me an example of a case where law enforcement has actually contacted you for advice or for help.
2: Yes, I get contacted by law enforcement again on a regular basis. And one of the most recent cases I had, I was contacted by a DA investigator out of Northern California. I can't tell you because it's a celebrity case. I can't tell you what it was about. It was a sports involvement. And what had happened, and to show you how easy it is for attachment, is this particular, it was a female victim. She was walking through the crowd, and she is an individual that makes contact with the crowd. She also does things in a producer environment. Not going to mention the team or anything else, and she had to just run across this individual who apparently had been a, a lifelong fan or had been in the been there for a long time, long time season ticket holder, and she just said something like "Hello, how are you?" that that type of thing, and then she was gone. Then what happened was this individual felt that they were married, even though she was already married. And she was starting, she was pregnant and about to have a child. He felt that was his child and they had a relationship. So the DE investigator contacted me because she was frustrated because she was having a hard time getting it through the system. And so I sat down with her and I went through all the protocol that we utilized and what she needed to ask the the victims, what she needed to ask the stalker, et cetera, et cetera. And I asked, well, the first thing is he's already contacted the husband, hasn't he? And she said, Yeah, man, how'd you know that? Yeah, he went to his business and he said, You're no longer her husband, I'm her husband, that's my baby. Da da, da da da. I said, Well, how does how did she get impregnated? And she said, Well, you know, I said, I've heard it all pretty much. Don't don't worry, tell me. I'm gonna tell you how I think it was, but you tell me, and I'll I'll see if it fits. All right. So he's in his never had a contact with this person, never dated her, anything else. So he's in his room, he's masturbating, takes care of business. And he says, during that night, several people broke into his house, gathered that his his material, took it to her, and she self-impregnated. All right? Now, that's not unusual. I hear that a lot. The other thing is, he took her to court and forced her to get an attorney and everything else because he felt that was his child. And so he wanted DNA. He wanted a paternity hearing. And he did that many times. It caused her all kinds of issues. And it cost her a lot of money for attorneys. He wasn't bringing an attorney, he just brought the case. He was smart enough to know how to do it. But after a period of time, we finally got the case set up so she could bring it to the prosecutor and the prosecutor had a problem. So we used people that I deal with, their previous prosecutors, and they contacted the prosecutor and got a successful felony prosecution for stalking. The guy's doing prison time now. How long did that take us? Two and a half years. And I worked with her for two and a half years, not every day, over a period of time.
1: That's a tragic case on so many different levels Absolutely. in terms of the mental illness part of it, yeah, and as well as just the impact on the victim and those kind of things. So when you tr- go in and you train law enforcement on how to handle stalking, what are the like two biggest challenges that you face in training law enforcement about how to deal with this?
2: Well, over the years, we've developed a set protocol, and if they follow it, they get it done, but it takes them a while. See, stocking's is not hard to work. just takes time. So well, the biggest issues that we have with law enforcement is like I brought up before, 15 to 16% of all cases are filed. And that's not anywhere near enough. And the prosecutors are bent out of shape because when I teach them too, I teach prosecutors, they say they don't get enough information to generate a stocking filing. And I said, I understand that. You've got to do certain things. But law enforcement doesn't, number one, have the time. You look around, you can't get cops anymore, number one. And then it's hard to get law enforcement in general to spend the time on a case, especially if they're not trained. Our family protection unit had a social worker involved with it, had a sex crimes investigator involved with it, had a stalking detective involved with it. And everybody was cross-trained and a domestic violence detective involved. We're all cross-trained and how to work stalking and sex crimes and domestic violence. It's a lot of training. It costs money. That's the biggest problem right there: is training and money. The other thing is sometimes guys just go, well, wow, it's just faster to get this case off my desk. I don't have a lot of time for this stuff. Those are the two big ones. When we train them up, they do a heck of a lot better. Cops want to help. I don't care what you see on television or
1: anything else. Cops want to help. I really agree with that, Mike. That certainly has been my experience in a lot of different wearing a lot of different hats.
2: They do. They're not there to fluff you off and everything else. But the cops also got to learn how to do threat assessment. That's a huge deal. If you have a stalker that you think has got severe lethality issues, he's going after the target, the victim, you've got to do several things right away. And one of the things that we do, we don't normally just get a paper that says, you know, you were strained from going after the victim because that's only as good as the people backing it. So... We, if we do actually decide to file a restraining order against the stalker, we have that investigator or a Metro team go out and get him right in the face with the paper, man. This is who we are. We're coming after your butt and you stop stalking. Now, sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't.
1: Mike, do the police ever become targets?
2: Yes. If they're
1: the ones who are out there, yeah, out there trying to enforce these laws and protect the victims?
2: Yes, absolutely. Law enforcement stalk off and on. It's not unusual. I've been stalked three times. The last one was two years ago. The The situation is, for example, we had a female that and this is, I wasn't being stalked, but I took this female as another thing where she thought this guy had a child with another woman that was her child. And we arrested her because we were fearful of the kidnap scenario because we do photograph and fingerprint the victim and the babies and the kids and everything else and their cars they drive and and on and on and on. We just don't want a car that looks like this that goes on the board. We want in the news, we want this car, we want this good picture of them, because sometimes they do become kidnapped victims. So in essence, we arrested her, and she felt that that was her child, on and on and on. She got sent away to, I think it was Bacaville at the time, for 80-day evaluation, because when she got up in front of the judge, she just started talking to the wall. And and she was a paralegal. She's quite intelligent. She knew what she was doing most of the time. And when she finally got out of prison, she started stalking her parole officer. So it's their program to stalk. They don't stalk multiple victims at the same time, but at least 50 to 60% of them will stalk other people, oftentimes within the first year, once a that happens.
1: Well, Mike, unfortunately, we're about out of time, but I want to tell you that this is such a timely topic, I think, and I know this behavior has been going on for a long time and it sounds like that we're finally catching up in terms of figuring out some strategies for how to deal with some of the individuals and the problems that they have. We sure are glad that you're out there as a resource to victims as well as to law enforcement and hope we can have you back on the show sometime soon.
2: Hey, the more and you do it, the more information that gets out there, the better it is for the people that are out there so they don't become victims of stalking.
1: Thank you again for joining us for Threat of Evidence.
0: I'm Dr. Ron Martinelli.
1: And I'm Linda Martinelli.
0: As former law enforcement officers, we know that your life and the lives of those you love and work with can change in an instant when you encounter an active shooter.
4: Unfortunately, in today's world of uncertainty, encountering an armed active shooter can have deadly consequences. That's why the key to survival is training and preparedness.
0: And that's why we want to invite our listeners to seriously consider taking our Response to Active Shooter training course.
4: Violence can happen to you anytime and anywhere and when you least expect it. Having a response and survival plan and engaging it can be the difference between life and death for you or a family member.
0: Our Response to Active Shooter courses are customized for the corporate, school, church, restaurant, and small business environment at a reasonable budget that fits your needs.
4: So don't put this life-saving training off because you don't think it will ever happen to you. We call those people victims.
0: Our Response to Active Shooter instructors are all nationally renowned tactical law enforcement experts who will guide you through the life-saving protocols you'll need to survive an active shooter event.
4: So be a victor, not a victim. Go to toactiveshooter.com to learn more today.
0: Remember, that's all one word, responsetoactiveshooter.com and be safe out there.